Ho, ho, ho. Hello, it's me, Gorblimey, coming at you with a special festive package, a trilogy of terror for Christmas. This year, I'm taking the theme of ghost stories, which were once as big a tradition at Christmas as opening a tin of Quality Street and trying to get your hands on a big purple one. But like a big tub of chocolates, it's not good to have too much at once and make yourself sick. It's a much longer episode than normal, this, so I've decided to split it into two halves, which means I'm spreading myself for you over this episode and another one in a couple of days. I hope you enjoy it. I certainly had a lot of fun doing it with my very lovely special guest. In the meantime, I hope you're having a fabulous Christmas break and I'll be back in your ear rolls in part two in a few days' time. Welcome to the Trilogy of Terror podcast. Hello and welcome to a special Christmas episode of the Trilogy of Terror podcast. I'm Gore Blimey and for a change I'll be looking at six films instead of the usual three, but still all done by the same director, Lawrence Gordon Clark. The reason I'm pushing it to six this time is because I brought in a bit of help. They're all TV movies shown in the original A Ghost Story for Christmas series of films. Uh, the BBC put one of these on each Christmas between 1971 and 1978. And as they're made for TV movies, who better to get to talk about them with me than historian, author, podcaster and TV movie guru, Amanda Reyes. Hello, Amanda. How are you? Hi, I love that intro. Guru. Thank well, you. I was going to say goddess, so uh, oh, <laughs> I don't know which is better. better. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so it's very, very chilly and wintry over here. So how are things up your end? Do you know what? <laughs> well, up my end is okay, but the weather has been really nice. <laughs> it's um, and by nice I mean I really like winter, and I live in Texas, and we don't really get winter like you do. But it snowed last week, oh. and um, it was really beautiful. I hadn't seen snow in a couple years, and it's been cold and rainy, and I love it. Mm -hmm. I'm impressed. I thought it was just always incredibly hot and humid over there all the time. It is until like October 30th, and then it actually starts to kind of get oh. cold. And then um, for some reason, a couple weeks ago, it just kind of hit. This cold front came, and I welcomed it because I really like, you know, I'm a child of the 70s, so everything is about Kate Jackson turtlenecks. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so yeah, I like yeah. embrace that. Yeah, I embrace that every year, so. <laughs> uh, well, uh, just a bit about who you are and, and what you do and everything like that. First of all, you're involved in a podcast called the Made for TV Mayhem podcast, which you do with Dan Budnick and Nathan Johnson. Um, what's that all about? Apart from TV movies, what do you do? Well, it's a companion to my blog, which is called Made for TV Mayhem, which I started like a, about a decade ago. And although my blog does a little bit of everything related to classic television. It specifically was designed to talk about TV movies. And um, and so I, I'm really into them. And I had a kind of a resurgence of love for them about a decade ago. and was just really concentrated on that genre. And so the podcast is really just basically a companion to that. And what we do is we take two TV movies. The goal is to try to take one that's pretty well known that people might recognize and then take an obscure film that's along the same lines or features the same actor or director and um, and just kind of like 
we just we review the movies. We try to give a little bit of background to them. Um, I'm an archivist by day, so research is like really uh, in my blood. So I really, really love to talk about like what the, they ran against. Um, if I can find the Nielsen ratings, which is our rating system here in America, so we can see how programs rated against each other in terms of viewership. Um, I like to do that and to talk about um, the actors. I've just started um, reaching out to people, and I interviewed Lance Guest recently um, about uh, a series right. here. Yeah, in America called um, the After School Special, which you guys don't really have an equivalent to. I found out through you. Mm. Um so it's just like a message show. It was like every week it was different. And there was like a message in there about like how to take care of things that happen when you're a kid. And Lance Guest was in three of them. And so I'm trying to just basically document these uh, pieces of television that aren't as well documented, you know, generally, even though TV movies were like really, really popular in the 70s and 80s. And even in the 90s, there's not a whole lot about them available in terms of information and especially production history. Yeah, it's an incredibly niche kind of film, really, which makes it all the more interesting and, and kind of mysterious to us because we don't really, we've never really had them in the same way that you have. So it's something that I've been learning really through listening to the podcasts with you guys. You know, it's really taught me quite a lot about them. Oh, good. Going on from that, I mean, that's why I call you a bit of a guru as well, is that you were also involved, you edited and wrote in a book recently, which is called, and tell me if I get this wrong, it's Are You in the House Alone? Growing Up with Gargoyles, Giant Turtles, Valerie Harper, The Cold War, Stephen <laughs> King and Co-Ed Call Girls, a TV movie compendium 1964 to 1999. Did I get that right? You did. And the whole reason why we have that really long subtitle is because I actually told the publisher, I said, I really want the words co-ed call girl <laughs> on the cover. <laughs> and he was he was extremely malleable with that. He was like, OK, let's see what we can do. And I sent that title and he was like, cool, let's do it. So um, I'm really excited. About, plus Valerie Harper. She's my queen. You yeah. Know. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's the book. It just came out this year. Um I'm really excited because uh, a couple weeks ago it ended up on Barnes & Noble's Best of Horror list for oh, the year. Oh, yes, I saw that. That was brilliant. Yes. Yeah, that was really exciting because Barnes & Noble is huge. I don't know how they are in England, but like I had no idea that I was even on their radar. Um, and so to end up on that list with Stephen King, by the way, was really mm. amazing. No, that's fantastic. And as if that's uh, not enough, you're also involved in another book as well. Yes, yeah, a book that just came out called Yuletide Terror, which may be of interest uh, to your listeners because, well, it, it's Christmas horror. So I'm assuming a lot of people are listening specifically for ghost stories for Christmas, but also they might just have an interest in Christmas horror. And this just came out and it covers film and television. It was um, published by Spectacular Optical, which is a, a small publisher in Canada that does a lot of really neat stuff. Um, and they have at least two chapters that I can think of about ghost story for Christmas. Um, I think one is about just the history of how ghost stories came to England and um, the tradition of that. And then I think the other chapter, now I haven't gotten my copy of the book yet, so I'm basing these on the chapter titles. Um, I think the second one actually goes into the series that we're going to discuss. Um, my chapter was just actually about American anthologies. I thought I'd be writing about Ghost Story for Christmas because I do consider it an anthology, but um, but somebody was already doing that, so they asked me to sort of concentrate. I do have some foreign titles in my article, but okay. I mostly concentrate on American anthologies who had scary Christmas episodes. Right. And um and I I do a lot of uh I didn't cover the big shows as much as the little shows so I'm kind of excited about it and I hope it gets well received when it comes out but the ghost story yeah. stuff is in there and is written by two prominent authors I think Derek Johnston and if I get that wrong I'm gonna feel horrible did the history of 
Optic Ghost Storytelling, and Kayla Janice, um, who owns Spectacular Optical, did the uh, actual series, the television series. Oh, brilliant! When does this when is this due to come out? This book. Well, it just came out. Um, and I think she's shipping everything out to the Indiegogo people this week. Um, and she's been doing a book tour. And um, she's been getting small amounts of the book for the last couple of weeks to sell uh, during the tour. But I think it's officially coming out like two weeks before Christmas, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, just in time for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So how do us mere mortals get hold of a copy then? Um, I would go on Spectacular Optical's website. I don't remember the exact URL, but if you just look up Yuletide Terror Spectacular Optical, it'll come up. And I believe that there's a link to order it from there. It'll probably be available on Amazon at some point, but I'm not sure it is yet. So I would go to the publisher first. Plus, I think the publisher makes money if you order directly. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So try that. Oh, excellent. And, I mean, on top of that, you, you've been popping up on Blu-rays. Um, you've been doing yeah. the, the Blu-ray commentary for The Spell. You did that earlier on this year. Yes, I did. That was really exciting. I was contacted by Shout Factory to um, provide a commentary track for a 1977 TV movie. Um, as you said, it's called The Spell. It's the first time I've ever done anything like that. I did it solo, so that was really scary. I'm used to having my podcasting partners to bounce <laughs> off of. So it, was, so it was just me for like 80 minutes talking. But um, it's a really interesting film, and um, I like I really like critical theory. So there's a lot of watching the movie and talking about the actors and stuff, but there's also some – there's a lot of really interesting subtext in the film. Um, um, a lot of like um, hints at feminism and then a strike back against feminism. It's really an interesting layered movie written by the guy who wrote um, Visiting Hours, which is that Lee Grant. Horror oh, yes. Film yeah. One of the slashes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is completely feminist. Right. And so you can see if you watch the spell, which came out a few years beforehand, where he's headed um, in terms of how he feels about sort of female empowerment, which uh, is amazing. And then um um, in 1978 or 1979, he made another TV movie called Night Cries, which actually builds on the spell in terms of that female empowerment. And then I think he really hits a high with uh, Visiting Hours. So to watch those three together would be um, pretty interesting. I think the trajectory uh, is really neat, the way that he, he builds on the strength of the female characters in each film. And you've also been um, popping around all over the world uh, recently. This Just in this last year, I've seen you twice in the UK. You have, and that's the best part of my trip, just so you know. <laughs> you're very good. <laughs> but it's taken you to, you've been to Australia as well, and you've been all over the place. Yeah, those are the two main places I've been. I was actually invited to a conference, or not conference, I'm sorry, a film festival in another country, but I don't think I can do it this time. But yeah, I went to Australia for a film festival, and I spoke on a panel, and then I came to England in April to talk at what's called the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies, which is in London. And I talked about TV movies for 90 minutes straight and nobody threw me out or threw stuff at me. <laughs> really happy about it. A lot of people came out. I have a lot of online UK friends and um, a bunch came out to see me both for the talk and you came out afterwards for that weekend with um, Justin and Eric from the Hysteria Continues. And yeah, um, we had yeah. a great day together. Mm. And, and then you came back. Uh, I was there in October to give a uh, just a short presentation at a conference in Canterbury at the University of Kent, which was a really cool conference about TV and horror, but it was mostly British. And so I didn't have uh, a frame of reference for a lot of what they were talking about. But the themes in television, both in America and in England, seem very um, aligned with each other. And, um, and so it was really interesting. I got to meet Helen Wheatley, who wrote a book called Gothic Television, which is amazing. And she's going to be doing something on like how we deal with grief and loss 
in, oh, right. in television. And I'm really attuned to that because I spoke a little bit about that uh, at the Miskatonic University. And um, it's something that TV movies do really well uh, because TV movies are very much about the domestic and, and they're smaller. And so they so they take very human topics and they're, they're less of a spectacle than you might see in the theatrical. And so she's going to talk about that in an uh, upcoming book. And it was really neat to meet her. And then I came back to London for a day and a half, and you and I went to David Warbeck's old house. <laughs> we did. <laughs> which is amazing. I, amazing that we didn't get arrested lurking around <laughs> outside with our cameras. Well, you looked pretty, like, cool. I was the one that was going up to, like, the little hole in the wall at the <laughs> gate and, like, trying to snap pictures of the patio in front of their security cameras. And nobody's come for me yet. So... <laughs> I'm really happy about that. But it was really neat. They've converted it. It was his house and half of it was a theater. And now they've converted it um, into apartments, which I'm sure is super expensive but uh, and beautiful. Mm. But the facade seems to be pretty much the same on the outside. So it was really neat to see where uh, Mr. Warbeck came home from work every day. Yeah, yeah. No, it was amazing. It was a good, fun trip. Yeah, it was great. I had an amazing time. And I know you could barely understand me because I'd lost my voice. <laughs> <laughs> and I know I said things to you and you looked at me like you thought you knew what I was saying. And then you would answer the question, but it wasn't necessarily the right question. But it was great. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, are you looking at TV movies, why TV movies in particular? Uh, you know, I grew up on TV movies and um, they were a gateway to horror for me. When I was very little, I think the first two horror films I saw were Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and Gargoyles, which are two TV movies. And I was very young. I was like four or five. Um, and they had a huge impact on me. And what's so interesting about those two films is that they're both sort of monster movies. But whereas Gargoyles made me fascinated with monsters, I found the creatures really beautiful and I and I felt for them. The uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark Creatures terrified me. And so there was both a fascination and a fear that came with the TV movie and the horror genre in general. And, you know, I grew up in Vegas, Las Vegas, which is seems like a big town to people. And it's bigger than it was when I lived there. But it was really a small town in the 70s and 80s with a, with a big tourist attraction in the middle of it. But it wasn't like grindhouse type films were ever going to come to my town. And if they did, my parents are not going to take me to them They're, you know, and so uh, TV horror was a real good outlet for me when I was really too young to watch like Friday the 13th, although I did watch those. But um, this was sort of a safe entry point for me to see like these really cool, scary, like Satan's School for Girls, you know, Bad Ronald, all those the classics yeah, and kind of yeah. get introduced to what horror films were about. And so um, I've always had a soft spot for them. And as I've gotten older, I've just kind of noticed that there's not just, like I said, not a lot of documentation about them. So I just decided to start writing about them. Yeah. So where did they, when did they sort of appear and how did they come about in the US? Um, you know, they're actually uh, sort of a, a stepping stone from anthology television. So like in the 60s and 50s and probably in the 40s, they used to have a lot of anthology TV, which, uh, you know, was just uh, I'm sure your, your listeners know what anthologies are, but basically it's just like one off programming. So like they would it would be a different um, episode every week that had nothing to do with the previous episode. They'd be like an hour long. Yeah. And they were really appealing to people for a lot of different reasons, um, partially because they were um, sort of set in everyday situations. A lot of them felt like plays, but they, they reflected the way we were really living as compared to something like Leave it to Beaver, where it was very perfect, you know, suburban families and things like that. And, and a lot of the anthologies really went there drama wise and they were extremely popular. So um, I don't want this to be too long, but like uh, to to 
fill up some time for the networks. They were often um, purchasing the rights to theatrical films to kind of, you know, make up some of the programming. But the studio started to charge more and more for these uh, programs, for these films. And so uh, somebody got the bright idea to say, hey, why don't we just start making our own movies? And basically, there, we we market it like an anthology, but it's just like 20 or 30 minutes longer than what a regular anthology episode would be. Mm. And we have a different one every whenever. And at the beginning, they didn't do them every week. And so the first one showed up in 1964, and it's called See How They Run with William Forsythe. And it's a, it's a lost film. It's almost impossible to find anything about it. I have found one newspaper image from it, but in general, it kind of came and went. And I think people saw it. And, and throughout the 60s, there was a couple of dozen TV movies came out. Um, the first pilot movie came out, which was, I think, famous, the name of the game. And um, the first horror TV movies came out, which is Fear No Evil and Daughter of the Mind, I think, are the first two. But there was some really interesting, like in the late 60s, um, I covered this on the Film and uh, Water podcast. Um, there was a TV movie with Janet Lee called Honeymoon for a Strain- with a Stranger, which is basically a giallo. Really interesting film. It's got Rosanna Brazzi in it. Uh, it's beautifully shot. I think it's in Spain that they are. And a lot of these, the older you get, you go with the TV movies, the more sort of filmic they are. And and they, a lot of them were set in foreign countries. And they're a little bit more epic. And then in 1969, ABC decided that they would do weekly TV movie programming, which was called the ABC Movie of the Week. And it was huge, huge. And so as the decade wore on into the 70s, all of the networks were showing TV movies at least once a week. And at some point in the mid seventies, there was a new TV movie on every night of the week. Oh, right. So there's, yeah, there's hundreds of them. It was a phenomenon. There's 5,000 titles between 64 and 99. Yeah. I've covered like 500 of them. (laughs) You know what I mean? Wow. um, Yeah. So it's there. And a lot of them are lost and people are really interested in them. And so, um, yeah, so they started in 64. They've been around for a while. They still exist today, mostly on cable, like Lifetime and Sci-Fi. Do right. a lot of, uh, I was going to ask you about that. Are they still going now? Yeah, not so much on network, although we have a network here called NBC. And um, I don't know if they're doing it this year. They, I think they are. They do... Um, They've been doing a Dolly Parton Christmas, and it's their TV <laughs> movies, and I think they're about her childhood. I haven't seen them yet, but they're called uh, A Coat of Many Colors, I think was the first one. And, um, oh, I see. But like the song. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, and um, that's an original made-for-TV movie. Putting all my cards on the table there by showing that I know a bit too much about Dolly Parton songs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I always think of um, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's I what I think of. Uh, but I didn't even think about the connection to Dolly Parton. I also think <laughs> of um, Last House on the Left because, you know, there's a song on the album called uh, Your Coat of Many Colors. Oh, right. Oh, no, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. And I don't know if that's the Dolly Parton remake or not, to be honest with you. Yeah. It's not, she's not someone I would normally associate with Last House on the Left, really. No, no. No, no. She's, she's not a horror movie at all. No, she's, no. <laughs> she's wonderful. <laughs> she had a few horrible movies, but not horror movies. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, like, Smoky Mountain Christmas is really good. Straight Talk is really good. Oh, Rhinestone. So you're thinking of Rhinestone, right? Uh, possibly. I've seen one or two. <laughs> I've seen a couple that I like, but there's also been a couple of uh, duff ones. <laughs> So, I mean, as far as horror goes, because you've mentioned horror and, and TV movies were sort of a way into horror for you, horror films generally, what would you say was your kind of taste when it comes to horror films? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. When it comes to TV movies, I'll watch anything, and they do a lot of ghost stories. Cause so, so here in America, and I don't know what it's like in England, um, but uh, they're heavy, they don't want a lot of stuff in your movies that is explicit or television in general. No cursing, no violence, you know, no nudity. And so TV movies, to comply with that, made a lot of ghost stories and kind of slow burn psychological thrillers. Oh, and right. I love those. Yeah, yeah I, I love them. Uh, but in general – my number one horror genre is slasher films. Like, All right. <laughs> you just drop me down in a Friday the 13th or the Slayer or anything. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what the low, the mutilator, like there's so many movies that I love pieces, um, you know, and I really love that. And it's a stark contrast to what they were doing on TV. But for some reason, I don't know. I love slashers. I've never stopped loving them since I <laughs> discovered them as a kid. Uh, but I didn't really watch them as a kid. They scared me too much. Uh, it wasn't until I was an adult that I could really like sit down. And now I just think they're the greatest things ever. But uh, but I like all genres. That's just probably my favorite. I yeah. also love um, – you had a guest on who had a, a love of shark movies. Oh, yes, yes. Nico, yes. Yeah, yeah. I see, I'm with her there. She's my soul <laughs> sister because <laughs> I, that's like my second favorite. I love it. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier that uh, we, we've we never really had uh, TV movies as part of our TV culture over here. Do you think we're missing out anything? Um, You know, I don't know, because you guys have your own interesting programming. And I, based on what little I've seen of your TV movie output, and I'm counting Ghost Story for Christmas, even though it's not really because they're too short. Yeah. It, England, or Britain, I should say, I don't know where it's exactly produced, what you air, but... um. You guys really spend time with your programming. Like here, we like uh, we shit out stuff like twenty two episodes a year of TV. So it's <laughs> you know what I mean. It's go go yeah. go. And like the young ones, um, which is a show I know really well. Um, oh, yes. That there's only twelve episodes of that, and um, but it, every episode is amazing because they took their time making it. So. To say that you're missing out, yeah, I think it, it, it could have been a really neat gateway for people. I don't know what it would have looked like in the 80s with the video nasties, like TV horror production would have been really interesting. And I'm sure you guys had it during the video nasties era, but to the extent that we had it, do you know what I mean? Mm. It, uh, it would be interesting to see what that would have looked like. But like you guys had threads, which I still haven't seen because I'm afraid it's going to traumatize me because the day after yes. destroyed me. Yes. Um, and you had the women in black, which is excellent. Oh, yes, and, yes. Yeah. So you have had TV movies and it looks like what you guys and that's not to downplay anything. America has some amazing TV movies. I mean, amazing. Of course, yeah. You know, but what I'm saying is when you guys do it, it it's like your full heart is there. And so I think you did it the way that it matters. It's just you did it at a lesser volume. So yeah. are you missing out? Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'd have to have grown up in England and then come here and done nothing but watch TV movies for like two years to really answer that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Because I don't know yes. what the experience is. But, um, but I think that your guys' output is just really cool. So I don't think you should have changed a thing about it. Yeah. I mean, as far as TV movies go, we, we don't do a lot of them over here. We do a few, um, which is why I thought for this case, tying in with the Christmas theme and everything like that, I thought we'd look at the, the ghost story for Christmas, because although they're quite short, some of them are only half an hour or 50 minutes or something. They're kind of little self-contained films that were linked together over a period of years. I mean, we we all love a ghost story on a winter's night, and we don't do them often enough these days. And it, you can't beat that exciting feeling of being spooked by spectres or grabbed by the ghoulies. 
Uh, I loved being grabbed by the ghoulies. <laughs> you don't even know how much I love it. <laughs> so these Ghost Story for Christmas films, um, they were all done between 1971 and 1978. And they were shown once a year on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, mostly based on M.R. James stories. But there's also a Dickens one and there's a couple that were specially written as well. There was a, an earlier film that was done, which was based on M.R. James' Whistler and I'll Come to You from 68, which was probably an influence on these ones and how they came around. And there was a revival between 2005 and 2013 where there were about four of them were, were made and all of them MR, MR James adaptions mm -hmm. and, and including a remake of Whistle and I'll Come to You as well. So there's eight stories in the original series is what we're going to be focusing on and we're going to be looking at six of them in particular, which is still quite a few to cover, but uh, don't worry, we'll be knocking them out in order. And I don't know about you, Amanda, but I'm, I'm more than ready to knock one out now. So, shall we begin? <laughs> yes, please. What's this? I don't remember. Oh. Yes, of course, I'd completely forgotten. Papers of the Venerable Archdeacon Haynes bequeathed in 1894 by his sister Letitia Haynes. Haynes? I know that name. I read something about it quite recently. Our old dean said the box would never have been accepted by the library. He kept it locked up in the deanery. He said it never would be opened while he was in charge. Strange. I wanted to know what was in that box for years. You'd better have a look at it. Right, the first of the stories we're looking at, the first episode that was shown out of these ones, is The Stalls of Barchester, which was shown in 1971, which apparently was filmed in 10 days on a budget that came to within £8,000. And it was filmed in Norwich Cathedral and the surrounding buildings around there. Now, we've got a narrator who is called Dr Black, and uh, I don't know if this will mean anything to you or not, Amanda, but he's best known over here as Richard from the sitcom Keeping Up Appearances with mm. Hyacinth Bouquet. Sure. Yeah, instantly recognisable. <laughs> and um, ironically, he was also in a production of the Barchester Chronicles TV miniseries, which uh, shares oh. the same name. Anyway, it's 1932 and Dr Black arrives at the Cathedral Library to catalogue the books and things. Apparently he finds it quite boring and the librarian's not very helpful. But the librarian does remember there's a box of, of diaries and documents from the Archdeacon Haynes that was bequeathed by his sister. And it's been locked away in the deanery, never to be opened, but uh, it's there now. And he says, which is a bit strange, he said, I've always wanted to know what's in that box for years. And then he says, I'll leave it to you. Let me know if you find anything interesting, which is a bit strange. Um, <laughs> there was something about the archdeacon. The old archdeacon had an unexplained and mysterious death. So Dr. Black, who's the, the guy that's doing the cataloging, starts to read through the documents. And in typical um, of these stories, and I think it's typical of, of James, where you have someone telling a story and then you know th there's stories come out of the different stories so now we go to 1872 as he's reading through so we've got dr haynes who arrives with his sister and becomes a junior deacon 
Again, another pop culture reference here. Uh, the sister, best known as Mavis Riley from Coronation Street, which is a long-running mm. soap, and she was in it for years and years and years. She was also a character called Dolly in a sitcom called Dinner Ladies as well, which was written by Victoria Wood. This guy, Dr. Haynes, has wanted to be the Archdeacon for a long time, apparently, and he's well-suited to do it. But the the guy before him had lived to a, a very old age <laughs> and wouldn't give up the job. <laughs> and um, he's another recognisable one. Um, I recognised him straight away as young Mr. Grace from Are You Being Served, which was a, a oh. sitcom in the 70s. And he was in Dad's Army as well. Yeah, I really like this part because um, as an introduction to Ghost Stories for Christmas, it's kind of funny. And yeah. uh, it's it ends up being a little different from the others, I think. But the humor here is really good. Mm. Um, I don't know if you're going to get to the part, and I don't want to cut you off, but nope. where the sister is talking about Methuselah. Oh, yes, yes. She's like, she's yeah. like, they said Methuselah lived 900 years. Could you imagine? And he's like, yeah. Because he thinks <laughs> the guy's never going to die. You know what I mean? So he can get promoted to that position. It's really funny. I know he's he's still going. I think he goes on until he's ninety two years old, and yeah. he's still in that position. Although it's quite funny because from from me recognizing him from from television programs, I keep wanting him to to say you've all done very well, which was something he used to say in uh, Are You Being Served all the time. But uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, Haynes, Doctor Haynes, was probably the the best known actor from this. Who's Robert Hardy? Who was is uh, we would remember him as Siegfried in in All Creatures Great and Small, but younger people would know him as Cornelius Fudge in the Harry Potter films. He would be considered pretty hot for that time period, wouldn't he? Because I was thinking about that. Mm. Like, as a man of the cloth, is he allowed to get married, like, in his position? Oh, I don't know. I mean, these are just the thoughts I have while I'm watching these things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, yes. I'd be a bit worried that if you did go in and snog him, you'd end up with his um, moustache all over you because it looked like it was glued on. Yeah, it did. It was it was pretty impressive. But I just was thinking, <laughs> wow, I guess for 1792 or whatever it was, it <laughs> But uh, anyway, the old archdeacon falls down the stairs. And uh, he dies, and the maid finds him and screams. We later hear that Letitia, who is the Mavis Riley character, says that it's the maid's fault because there was a missing stair rod. We also find out that the Archdeacon hadn't been collecting dues, and there were four chancels that were beyond repair, and he hadn't basically been doing all the things he should have done. Anyway, now Dr. Haynes has become the Archdeacon, and he's sitting in his stall in the cathedral, which is Norwich Cathedral, which is quite an impressive cathedral, I must say. And he's sitting there in a stall with carvings of a cat and a cloaked figure on the armrests of it. Now then, at this point, Letitia is going off to Brighton to stay with a cousin, and she was suggesting to him about retiring, and, uh, you know, he should retire one day, and he says it's his duty to make sure things don't get as bad as they were with his predecessor and so on. Now... This is where the story hops backwards and forwards between Dr. Black and the librarian and Dr. H uh, well, the Archdeacon Haynes now. And um, Dr. Black is saying that he was very busy, not necessarily popular, but he was energetic, as if he was keeping himself busy to keep the shadows at bay, he said in a little quote. Mm. And he also finds a letter which pops out of something where somebody's threatening him, asking for £40, which is apparently Jane Lee, who was the maid mm. that was mentioned earlier on. And there were apparently regular payments being made to her before, which all sound very suspicious. Back to Haynes, and he's living in this big house all on his own now that the sister's gone to Brighton. But um, he does feel that he's not alone, and he hears these voices which are like sort of laughing and sort of flashbacks to earlier things. And he wonders if it's what he calls decay of the brain. And he also notices when he's sitting in his stall and he's um, 
uh, rubbing rubbing wood sounds awful, but um, the, <laughs> the the little cat a carving, and it suddenly feels all furry on his hand and makes him jump. Well, I mean. <laughs> That just put an image in my head. <laughs> well, there is an there is an irony there. I did think to myself, you remember that the uh, the murdered archdeacon was originally an are you being served? That anyone who remembers that will find it a bit ironic that there's an element of retribution featuring a cat in this. But uh, anyway, um, he asks this guy called Matthew about the carving. Says they're famous. There's angels on one side, and over this side there are the damned ever burning. So I did wonder if that might be during their Eloise period or something. But uh, anyway. The carvings were done after a fire. They were sort of restored, and they apparently used wood from oak trees nearby, particularly one called the Hanging Oak, which I thought was a great little touch. I suppose there are still parts of England as yet imperfectly lightened by the radiance of Christian thought. Indeed. I suspect the process of enlightenment is far less advanced than many imagine. The trees at the centre of this grove, which furnished the materials for the noble structure in your cathedral archdeacon were used at one time for much darker rites than those they now fulfill in pre-christian times of course one understands within living memory my dear sir take for example the largest stump which stands a little apart from the others it is still remembered in my parish that it was called the hanging oak the propriety of the title was confirmed by the fact that human bones were found between its roots when it was filled. New Year comes round and he goes back to his rooms and he hears a voice saying, let me wish you a happy new year. And a couple of weeks later, he goes to fetch his watch downstairs at night. He starts saying to himself, I must be firm. I mm. must be firm. This comes up quite a lot. And I must say, it did remind me of me the first time I went to a gym. <laughs> And uh, he, there's a very creepy scene where he's going down and then up the creaky stairs with a candle. Very classic sort of a horror scene. And there's a black cat appears and he stumbles and drops his watch. Uh, back in the moderner times, the Dr. Black suggests that Haynes is using the diary as an outlet for his fears and points out that he keeps repeating that phrase about being firm. And um, they mention things about him being lonely and overworked and uh, and so on. Descent into madness. Yes, yes. Well, that's kind of hinted, I think, before as well, because he talked about decay of the brain and uh, right. and being on his own. I mean, this being on his own as well is is like loneliness seems to be a theme that comes up in a few of the stories. Yeah, there's there's a couple of things. Well, I guess we can talk about it after that. I noted that I saw that happen again and again. But the loneliness is interesting. I'm not sure I picked up on that, but it makes me think of um, a novella called The Yellow Wallpaper. All right. Which is which is about sort of a female point of view of a woman who um, lost her baby. And so back in the day, they were like, well, the best way for her to handle grief is to keep her isolated from everybody and just let her kind of be sad. But it drives her nuts. And so the isolation thing um, ah, is really interesting yes. in here. You know? Yes, it does sound very much like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it does make you think then, is he actually seeing these things or are they just part of his being on his own too long and, and all that? Yeah, right. exactly. One night he's working alone in his library and he hears movement in the hallway outside and it's coming and going, but there's nobody there. And then when he goes to evening prayer, the choir is singing one of the psalms and he's got his hand on the cloaked wooden carving on the other side of his of his stall. And for a moment, it seems to turn into a skull with a fabric hood and he puts it down to some kind of illness again. And 
He hears walking footsteps following him at night. At one point, he bumps into the guy Matthew, who asks him if he'd just seen him with Canon Arnold, and apparently no one was with him. And he keeps hearing voices in his sleep, and there's more flashbacks from earlier, and so on and so on, until at one point we get a very spooky grey hand that touches his shoulder, which makes mm. him jump and turns around to see a black cat walking away. It's so scary, that part. <laughs> yeah, very, very nice jump scare that just appears. <laughs> So the librarian in the modern day, I say modern day, the 30s, wonders why he didn't admit his ill health and go to Brighton. But instead he asks his cousin to stay, a cousin called Alan to come and stay, who points out that the house is actually noisy and the cat is large and wild, even though there isn't a cat. Hmm. Another one of the strange occurrences is when he asks his servant, John, to come up to his room in an hour's time to collect a letter. And he goes to his room to write the letter and everything. And he hears a voice outside saying, may I come in at the door? And he says, yes, come in. And the door opens and nobody's there. So uh, it's not John the servant. So that's quite interesting about whether he's allowed a ghost in or not. And he asks John about the cat as well and says they haven't got one. Yikes. Yeah, and there's more walking around with a candle and, you know, the sort of gothic <laughs> horror stuff as well. <laughs> and another night, he's in the library and he hears a cat outside the door. And there's a very creepy scene with a, a big close-up of his face and the candle as he's moving towards the door, which is very tense. And he jerks open the door and there's nothing there. He goes upstairs, he hears the cat below him, then turns round to see a hooded figure above him on the stairs, which lunges out, scratches his face, and he falls down the stairs, breaks his neck, and ironically, he's gone the same way that the old Archdeacon had gone, which he's implied that he had a hand in killing. Yeah, he had it coming, that guy. I don't care if he's hot. (laughs) So going back to the two guys in the library, uh, Dr. Black assumes that the librarian doesn't want the diaries published in the catalogue. So he goes to the cathedral and he notices that the cat and the hooded figure carvings have gone. So he goes to the museum and we get another nice shot of a skull in a case. They seem to like the skulls in these ones. They really do. And it was a nice uh, camera shot, actually, where he, when you see the skull, he's got his hand hand on top of the case which kind of mirrors the the you know that that sort of image of him in the store with his hand on top of the skull that kind of thing mm. the museum curator has heard of the carvings and apparently an old man had them and dropped one of them and it broke and a letter fell out written by the man who did the carving when i grew in the wood i was watered with blood now in the church i stand who that touches me with his hand if a bloody hand he bear, I counsel him beware, lest he be fetched away, whether by night or day, but chiefly when the wind blows high in a night of February. This I dreamt, 26th of February, 1699, John Austin. And apparently the, uh, the figure itself scared this old man's children so much he burnt it, although I don't know how old his children would have been if he was an old man, but anyway... Yeah, and then we have a closing shot, which I absolutely loved, which is, I don't know if it's deliberate or not, but it's got Dr. Black walking towards a building across a green, and there's a black and white cat sitting there just watching him, and then it eventually gets up and walks off as the credits roll. So that was the the synopsis for that first one. So the stalls of Barchester, what did you think? I thought it was really good. Now, I'd seen this one and the second one before, um, just earlier this year. Uh, I really like it. I don't know that I have a lot to say about it. I think you covered a lot of it. It's got it's got a lot of buildup and um, it's very slow in a good way. 
uh, in how it's kind of unfolds the story. And like I said, it's got a really nice dose of humor at the beginning, which is, is really great. And when you started to point out some of the ironies that were happening, like maybe that humor kind of, uh, sits through the whole film, but in a darker way, which is interesting. And I hadn't thought about before, but yeah, it's quite good. The acting's really good. Um, I think, the uh, scene that really got to me was when the hand comes out from behind and touches him <laughs> on the shoulder. Because yes. the first time I saw that, I was like, oh, my God. And then uh, I kind of forgotten <laughs> about that scene. And when I was watching it the other day, I, I had the exact same reaction to it. Um, it's got a nice energy to it. And, um, and I thought it was really good. You know, and I think the more and more I think about it, the more I think it does have like a nice undercurrent of humor through the whole thing. I'm thinking about yeah. the sister, you know, who's a bit of a gossip. And, um, and so in that way, it stands out to me from the other ones because some of them are, are just like as dour as you can get in a good way. You know, I don't, yeah. but this is the only one I can think of that has that really kind of nice sense of humor and irony through the whole thing. It's also quite interesting as well. You, you mentioned the humor because there's several other people in this were well known from, from sitcoms. So I thought that was quite an interesting thing, but yes, it's, it's got a, a little bit more humor than the other ones. Um, I liked it. I, I thought it was um, a very much a slow burn, this one. Yes. And um, it's not the most scary of them, but it's, it, it's a nice sort of a spine tingly kind of, scary yeah it's kind of it's a good introduction though because i mean and we'll talk about it as it goes on but they really branched off into so many different directions in terms of like mood even yeah. though the i think there's a lot of similarities between them but this is kind of a good gateway because it kind of engages you with that undercurrent of humor and the fact that it's a such a slow burn but it's got a really nice payoff mm. um i think kind of keeps you wanting to see more of of this especially from somebody like me who i don't know anything about mr james i mean i'm embarrassed to even admit that but <laughs> um without knowing any of his writing or stuff like if i would just sit down and watch this i think to myself i'd like to see more of these adaptations so it's it was a really good choice i think to start the series off yeah I, i'm the same as you i didn't really know anything about mr james and his work until looking through these which is quite quite interesting really to get a bit of a flavor of the the stuff he writes yeah absolutely on to the second of the the six films we're covering this one is a warning to the curious from 1972 along the coast of norfolk there persists an ancient legend it is said that in the dark ages when the vikings were a constant scourge the three royal crowns of anglia were hidden in the ground the crowns so the legend runs had a strange power no foreign army would invade the kingdom of Anglia so long as at least one of them remained undisturbed. Since that time, the site of one crown has been plundered by thieves and its treasure melted down. Another has been covered by the encroaching sea. Only one crown now remains, lying somewhere in its royal burial ground. Yeah, I read that this was originally conceived as a silent film um, by Clark, and I didn't read, there wasn't too much more information about that, but um, I think that's really interesting because as uh, we go through it, I, this movie is, is really all about imagery, more so over dialogue, so it's kind of an interesting um, adaptation. So anyway, this tale begins with a voiceover recounting the legend of three crowns, which were supernatural objects that uh, protected Norfolk, which is where this was shot. Um, as long as one of the crowns remained undisturbed, the region would be safe. When the story begins, there was only one crown left. 
A man is then seen digging a portion of a forest, and he's approached by this odd-looking man, which I called an oaf. I don't really know what you would call him, but he's a strange-looking guy. <laughs> and he tells the digger, no digging here. And I kind of underline this phrase, and we'll probably, as we go through, you'll notice that there are, even in the Dickens adaptation, there's like one line that kind of keeps getting repeated yes, in these. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, which I thought was really interesting. And so the one here is no digging here. Very true, um, yeah. No digging here. And so there is a struggle, and then uh, the specter slash oaf, I'll call him specter from here on out, attacks the man with, I think it's a hatchet. I'm not real good with my weaponry. It's, uh, yeah, billhook. Uh, sorry, a bill, okay. bill hook. <laughs> okay. I'll try to remember to call it that. Um, <laughs> Can I just uh, comment on that little first bit as well? Interesting that they brought back Dr. Black in uh, this film as well. I don't think he's in the actual story, but it's the same oh. guy as we mentioned in the last one that was in Keeping Up Appearances. He's he's brought back with the same name and same actor. Um, um, just one thing that amused me with this is that when the guy is digging the hole, he's digging, chucking the dirt uphill above the hole, which seems really impractical to me. <laughs> <laughs> he was desperate, man. He's desperate. <laughs> it's it's funny because in the attack, when he's attacked with the the billhook thing, you don't really see any gore or anything, but it's quite brutal. I was quite oh. surprised for this age of, especially as a TV thing, how how brutal it was. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I was really surprised. It starts off with a bang. This one, um, mm. I was like, what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so then we flash forward 12 years and then there's another man named Mr. Paxton who has come to basically find the same crown. Um, now, I read this uh, and I'm sure M.R. Jane's aficionados can tell me if I'm right or wrong. But in this adaptation, the story is set during the Depression. And I think the first one was set like in 1904 or something right. um, or the original, I should say. And this was to emphasize the sort of undercurrent of desperation for um, Paxton and his desire to pursue this particular object. Now, I don't know what the Depression was like in England, so but that's what the article said. Um, right. Like, I didn't even know there was a depression in England. Like, for me, I'm so, I hate it. I'm so, like, you know, centric to American history <laughs> that I don't even know what happens outside I of that. I presume they mean post-war, was it, B? Is that what they mean? So, like, um, when there was rationing and shortages of everything? Maybe, and... yeah. They, they just used the term depression and mm. wherever I read that piece of trivia. So, um, and then we'll find out later that he had actually lost his job. And that's supposed to be sort of, um, you know, a little bit of a character uh, nuance. So you understand why he's doing what he's doing. So it's stepping away from the idea of it being greed. But I, I still think there's a form of greed there. That's how, what, how I saw it. Um, Paxton checks into the hotel and has a, a book about the three crowns, which disturbs the hotel. I don't know if he was the employee or the owner, um, but somebody who worked at the hotel. Yeah. And later at the church or monastery, and you probably know um, these buildings better than me. Um, a man of the cloth tells Paxton that this uh, small town that they're in is steeped in legends, uh, which the locals take very seriously. He recounts a story about a man who was supposedly guarding the last crown, but he had died very young of consumption. The holy man, uh, never holy man, because I'm not really sure of positions of renting <laughs> uh, churches. I hate to say that, but um, the holy man or man of the cloth is unaware of the area that this man uh, had guarded, but his name was Agar and there was a headstone for him. At this point, a figure starts following Paxton on his travels and appears to him on the beach. Now, I made a note here saying it reminded me of the woman in black because she first appears yes, far away. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and it's that same kind of dark you can't really mm. make out. And like you can make out it's male. And in the woman in black, you're pretty sure it's a woman, but like you can't see the face. But it's it's quite creepy just the fact that they're they're just standing there in the distance. There's something a bit unsettling about that. It's super creepy and mm. it's gonna get creepier, actually. So um <laughs> 
Later, Paxton visits an antique store and finds another book about the crowns. Um, back on the beach, Paxton encounters Dr. Black, who is the other guest at the hotel. Paxton tells him he is sort of an archaeological hobbyist, and he needs to find out where Agar used to live. So he ends up, he finds himself sort of at this rundown house, um, which it turns out had once belonged to Agar. Um, there's a woman living there now who I think her husband or father had gone looking for work, and she was basically there by herself with her brother and a yeah. dog. Yeah. And um, she was from London and had a really great accent she was lovely um the um the woman who currently lives there points out a section of the woods agar had protected she remembered he had already died by the time she came to the house but um she had heard stories or somebody had pointed out where he had uh, gone every day to uh, apparently protect this part of the forest. She uses a she uses a really strange sort of old fashioned phrase for him as well. She says she thinks he might have been touched. That's right. <laughs> which I think that's right. a bit mad. I think. Yeah. Well, he's he's definitely a strange looking guy because we see him at the beginning and it's hard to tell. Mm. I mean, I guess that's how they did it in the 70s. You know, like if you're touched, you have to look odd. It was kind of very <laughs> correct. I like as well that uh, she describes that he used to go hanging around in the woods at night near the sun dunes. And I think nowadays we call that dogging. But I don't know. I might be thinking of something else. I don't. I don't know either one of those phrases. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning so much. <laughs> he, this leads Paxton to a place called Thruxton. He gets off a train and he walks towards this particular patch of forest. And what's interesting about this part is that it looks like that they've shot it day for night. And I don't know if you guys use that phrase in. England, but that's basically when they shoot in the daytime yes. to try to make it look like night. And yes. it's weird because, and I'll note it later, but it's actually night night as the night progresses. But they started with day for night shots, and it's clearly yeah. meant yeah. to look like night. So it's really unsettling. It, it's a little bit odd. I, I noticed that, and I thought it was a bit strange because in a lot of the other scenes where it's nighttime, they've gone to to trouble to actually film it at night. Yeah, and I thought that was technically. I think they they deliberately used sixteen millimeter film so that they could do things like dim light and nighttime and dark corridors and things like that so it was a bit strange that they did it in in this one but yeah I know, I know what you mean yeah i think it produces a really unsettling effect because um it's like you notice it but then it's night for night and i think it's kind of jarring the transition and maybe yeah. that's why they did it because it's about to get really jarring yeah, in general there was another little detail in the just before this which i thought was quite interesting sort of symbolism and stuff where um paxton is packing up his bag in his room and he notices the book is open and the cutthroat razor he's got has ended up on this page and seems to be indicating the name of Nathaniel Ager on the oh, page. Right. Yeah, That's so right. like an odd little thing, how it got there and stuff. Oh, you're so much better at this than I am. <laughs> Not at all. So, so Paxton digs for hours and he finally uncovers a crown. And here we see it's clearly night for night. Um, yeah. He senses a presence. And by dawn, he finds himself being chased across the countryside by a darkly dressed figure who had been following him. But he's still blurred. And then I wrote in parentheses, holy fuck. Because this <laughs> scene really, like, upset me. It's so good because um, – it's chasing him. And like, as much as I love my, like Michael Myers, I walk like Michael Myers, like you could be running from Michael Myers, get an airplane, go to New York, get off the airplane, take a train to like Long Island. If you <laughs> yes. can take a train to Long Island or a boat and you get off and Michael Myers is waiting for you. Yeah. And you know what I mean? He's, but he never runs. But when they run, 
Mm. It's really scary to me because there's something really human about that. Like the terror becomes really real. It's not supernatural anymore. No, there's some, there was some really great stuff in this as well. I thought the way they filmed this was there, there was one particular bit where he's being chased and the camera does a lot of like close ups of branches and you hear snapping noises. And, yes. and it's, it's really cleverly done. It's very, very unsettling. No, I was going to say if you would describe it to someone, it doesn't sound frightening at all, but it's very scary the way they did it. Yeah, it's it's really unsettled me. And so he's running and it's like different parts of the countryside. Like it feels like they're going forever. And then Paxton runs into a farmer um, and he feels like a sense of calm. And he thinks to himself, OK, the danger is behind me. Literally, it's behind him. So when he <laughs> when he begins to walk down the path, uh, feeling a bit safer, the farmer turns to watch Paxton walk away. But then he sees a figure following him. And then I wrote, oh, shit because <laughs> I was really freaked out. Um, once on the train, there is a strong sense that he is not alone. There's this really great scene where, I don't know what you call the guy that opens the train and lets you in, the ticket guy. Oh, the guard. And, yeah. yeah, the guard. And, um, and, he, and he thinks he's letting someone in, and then he says something to the effect of, oh, I thought there was someone here. Yes, and, yes. And uh, Paxton's on the train, and, he, and he's already like, all right, things are getting really bad. And like you can tell he already senses it. He's not brushing anything off at this point. And um, it's it's so scary. So... Then when he goes back to his hotel room, he hears a deep labored breathing. That was so creepy. Oh, so scary. So scary. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It just terrified me. And so because like it's just it's intense. Mm. It's intense. So back at the beach, Paxton runs into Dr. Black and begins to recount his tale. This time, Black sees a figure on the beach, but it disappears. Um, and then, so there's a lot of cutting back and forth to different spaces here, mm. so just stick with me. But at the hotel, Paxton confesses that he plans to rebury the crown, and he implores Black to not touch the treasure. He feels that his physical contact with the object is part of what has led him to being followed. So one another thing you'll notice in these, and which is an undercurrent, I think, in a lot of M.R. James stories, is that there's a sense of people constantly trying to apply logic to illogical situations. Mm. And this may come from, like... Um, the time we were in when um, I'm forgetting the name of the industrial revolution yep. was coming in and everything was about logic and about like building machines so we can do this better. And so there's a sense that MR James is reacting to that in these stories because everybody's always and, and Dickens as well. Everybody's always um, there's always a guy there that's like, well, it must be this or that's silly. It can't be that. And yet we always find out that the unfathomable is what's actually happening. So, yeah. So you see this here. It's underlined heavily in the, in the scenes with Black and Paxton because Black is really trying to like be like, okay, this must be what it is. But even he, when he um, leaves Paxton's room, there's another room there that's unoccupied, but the door shuts, and yes. he yeah yes. he says to the the hotel employee, "Oh, who's the other guest?" And the hotel employee is like, "There's no other guest," and you can tell Black is like, "Um, it's getting <laughs> real, guys. It's getting real," and so. <laughs> And so the presence makes its, makes its way into Paxton's room. Yes. So when you mentioned Blair Witch Project in the last episode, I wrote Blair Witch Project here because he's crouching down with his back to them with the flashlight on his back. And I instantly thought of the ending of Blair Witch. Yeah. 
and I expected him to be gone, like like not alive, when he's there and to have been scared to death or something had happened to him, but he speaks. And so so there's more that's going to happen. So so Black, I think, is on Team Paxton now. He's like, all right, something's happening, and we've got to bury this crown. So they end up going out into the woods together, and uh, they do what they need to do. But then Black turns around and sees a figure on the mound as they leave, which is interesting because now Black is seeing yes. The, yes. the specter. Um, so the next morning, Black calls out to Paxton to, to take a walk with him on the beach. But as Paxton follows behind, the real Black appears at the same door and the hotel employee is like, I swear, I just saw you here, you know? Yeah. yeah. And he, he's uh, taking you, whoever that was, took Paxton out onto the beach. So uh, we obviously know that Paxton is being followed by the specter. And I think we can guess what happens here. It turns <laughs> out for everybody. And then um, Black finds Paxton's body and he's holding him. And to me, this is him passing on the curse because he told him not to touch the objects. But I think his physical... Paxton's physical contact with the object led to Black's physical contact with Paxton, meaning that something is transferred. Yes. To yeah. to to Black, and when he gets on the train, um, he's sitting there, kind of reliving everything that's happened. He looks like he's in a bit of shock. And the train guard opens the door, and he says, "Okay, you can step right in, or whatever." And he goes, "Oh, I thought somebody was here." Yes. And then yeah. the episode ends and I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting because that thing with uh, touching something and it spreads to you, it comes up in one of the later stories as well. It's kind of similar theme comes into that. Yeah. When you watch these back to back, you really can pick up on the kind of undercurrent of uh, repetition, which is fascinating to me because it's less so, well, I don't know. I mean, I'd have to read the original stories to see how they play out and what Clark did yeah, to them when yeah. he adapted them. Because a lot of times when filmmakers use repetition in their films, I think that they're speaking about something within themselves. So, like, for instance, um, my go-to is always David Lynch because David Lynch makes really out there films. But sometimes you get a lot of similar imagery. And so that imagery means something to Lynch. And I don't know what it is and I would never claim to know what it is. But it fascinates me. So, like, for instance, he has a um, – he's really into, like, showing old people in really negative light. Um if you watch Twin Peaks, uh, the TV series, there's some reference to the, uh, the original TV series. There's some reference yeah. to that. Mulholland Drive definitely has that. And so it's something that reoccurs. Um, that's the one that comes to mind. I know there's others that I've noted. And, of course, I can't think of them in any <laughs> but, but so so for me here, I'd, I don't know how much of James – the repetition is in James or is in Clark, but it stands out to me and it's really fascinating. This, I mean, I thought this was by far the scariest of the films. I, I really love this one. I thought it had brilliant photography in it. It was really well filmed. Yeah. The atmosphere was great in it. And I thought there were some scenes that were really edge of your seat scary in this. I liked as well this whole mythology that uh, James made up about the Three Crowns. It sounds so convincing as the kind of legends that would be around that part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, I, I didn't think this was my favorite until I rewatched it. Cause there's another one and I'll say which one I thought was okay, my favorite when okay. we get to it. But, but rewatching it, this was the one that I had the most sort of a gut reaction to. Mm. So, so like all those things where I was writing, I actually ended my synopsis with two words and that was holy shit. Yeah. And that's <laughs> I was like, Oh my God, what's going to happen? And, and it, it leaves a sense of fear in you that stays with you. Mm. And, um, 
And, you know, so I should say I watched these out of order. So I didn't watch this one till one of the last because I'd already seen it. Right. And so so I was listing them as my favorite to whatever. And then I was like, you know what? I've forgotten how really good this episode was. Um, <laughs> it's just solid. And and um, it, you're right. It's really atmospheric. It's beautifully shot like the beaches yes. and the woods and everything. It's so serene. But then there's this sun settling feeling to the sereneness of of the location which is played out so beautifully in this and which continues in some of the others but um it's just like it's such a contrast like what's happening to paxton and and the area that they're shooting it in are so different from each other you know and so it was really interesting to see it sort of like turn something so beautiful like a vacation spot essentially where you go to relax into something of terror like yes, that yes and so so palpably scary. Like by the end of the film, you never want to visit that place. You know what I mean? You're done. It is not a good, it is not a good tourist um, advertisement for that area. But yeah, it's really scary. I loved it. This one might be my favorite too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Mind your step. Oh, sorry, sir. The light door, somebody. Hi, I'm Steve Pemberton. And I'm Rishi Smith. And this is the Trilogy of Terror podcast. A local podcast for local people. The next one is Lost Hearts. Peregrine Abney is my name. How do you do? Very well, thank you, sir. Fine, firm hand. Warm-blooded, strong-pulsed, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm... Twelve, next birthday? Yes, sir. The 31st of this month, sir. Halloween! Excellent. Couldn't be better. This one, the main character in this is an orphan called Stephen, who's a young lad, and uh, which is a bit different because a lot of the other ones, they tend to be older men. Did you think he looked like Corey Feldman? No, I suppose he did, yeah. No, I didn't think that, but now you mention it, it, it did a bit, actually. Yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> Apparently he was uh, in a television sci-fi series we used to have over here called The the Tomorrow People. He was mm. one of the main characters in that. And he also was young Pip in uh, Adaptation of Great Expectations. Um, but he died quite young, the actor. He died about 28 years old. So, oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, it's quite sad. Hmm. But oh. it, which is sad. He's very good in this. I thought it's not yes. often I say that about child actors. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he's he starts off. He's in a coach being taken to his older, much older cousin's house, and it starts off with him looking out the window and he spots a couple of mysterious ghostly figures by the roadside. So that's kind of where we start off mm. with this, and it's another brilliant location. I love these locations in these things. It's uh, another big house in the middle of the countryside. And we get to meet his his very creepy cousin called Abney, who is oh. a much older man. A, a brilliant performance. I love the performance the actor did for this. It's a combination of insane and sinister and obsessive and comic. It's a very strange mixture, but I, I love the performance of this anyway. And um, he is a bit obsessed with the boy being 12 soon. And he keeps saying things like, you're certain you're 12 next birthday? And he likes to write things like that down in his book. Now, this, now I don't know if if you felt the same as this, but watching this now in 2017... 
I don't know if, <laughs> if I'm watching it in the same way as people would have watched it back in the mm. early 70s, because this older cousin is described at one point. Cousins come in all shapes and sizes, and he's kindness itself. He may be an old bachelor, but he's very partial to children. That means something very different these days. And this whole obsession with the boy being 12, that is all. And so all the way through this, I had this kind of mm, uncomfortable feeling about that. Yeah, I definitely think that there's a creepy vibe to that. And I think in the 70s, too, though, it was meant to have that. And maybe mm. even when M.R. James wrote it, because I mean, like the innocence, definitely. I don't know if you've ever read that, but um, that has I think it's supposed to be menacing the sort of uh they never say it, and he probably – we find out he didn't intend it that way. But, like, um, I think, yeah, I think anybody who has sort of a an obsession with younger people yeah. are going are gonna to be creepy. I think that's ageless. Yes, she, yeah. But it, it's very – I certainly felt was a little bit uncomfortable with a few of the comments being said in this one. Um, yeah, so we, we get to meet Mrs. Bunch, who is the, the – older lady that works in the house and parks who's the man that works there uh mrs bunch by the way had already been in village of the dam the actress in oh. 1960 and which i was particularly interested in she had an uncredited role in the haunting which is possibly oh. my favorite horror film but yeah. uh, she was in there as a nurse apparently i don't remember her character in there but apparently she was in there so i like her already <laughs> <laughs> she was awesome. I really liked yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. Um, we do find out that this is not the first orphan that uh, Abney has taken in. Again, a bit creepy. And the boy goes downstairs and meets Abney the following morning. We get lots of very haunting flute music and so on. And he goes off into the gardens. And while he's exploring like a sort of a temple that's out in the garden, he catches sight of someone running away, but he can't find them. Abney has a little comedy moment where he's reading his his books about someone who was able to fly through the air and he jumps off his steps and says, not yet. Uh, so obviously he's he's mm -hmm. hoping to get that as well. He is uh, another one of these characters. Seems to, there's A few of the characters seem to be obsessed. They have this obsession, which is another thing that seems to pop up in these stories. Mm. Yes. He, in his case, the obsession is immortality. So, you know, another odd yes. character. Young Stephen sees a reflection of a girl in the pond while he's outside and he hears laughing coming from a tree. So he climbs up there, suddenly gets surprised by a girl who's up there and falls to the ground in shock. Meanwhile, Abney is snipping plants with a very dangerous looking pair of cutters in the garden. Um, I don't know what they are there. He calls them something like starflower or borage or something, but apparently they make your heart beat faster is what he mentions somewhere. And uh, Stephen, while he's talking to him, notices a boy and a girl looking out through an attic window who gesture him to keep quiet. Meanwhile, the servant guy, Parks, calls Mrs. Bunch and Stephen to come and have a look at some deep fingernail scratches in the door, which he blames Stephen for. Although it's it's clearly it's Freddy Krueger has been there because they're very <laughs> <know>. deep. <laughs> intense. Yeah, they're intense. Yeah. Uh, but actually, Abney doesn't tell Stephen off when he finds out about it and goes to have a look for himself. Now, Mrs. Bunch sits down and starts to tell Stephen all about a boy and a girl that had been there to live before these other orphans. They're called Giovanni and Phoebe. 
And again, we've got this situation where you've got a narrator telling another story within mm. the story, which seems to come up quite a lot with these James stories. Yeah. Um, and Phoebe, they said, was someone, someone just found her, <laughs> which also seems a bit creepy that they just found her wandering around. And the next thing we see, she's sitting having a bath. The whole thing That's just right. seems really creepy. And, That's right. um, and then eventually she just disappeared and she assumed she'd been had away by the gypsies. <laughs> You know, this part is interesting because the little boy wants to know if what he's been seeing, if she's one of the two people. Mm. And he asks about her, and I can't remember exactly what he says, but she's the opposite of how Mrs. Bunch describes her. Yes. And I thought that was interesting. Oh, she, he didn't say is she a tomboy, but there, she seemed yes. like less feminine, I guess, as the, as this version of that he's seeing. Yes. And, and she's like, no, no, she was all about her dresses and blah, blah, blah. And yeah. so it's kind of interesting that, that they've, changed the character mm. in mm. the other plane you know what i mean yeah yeah and you've got the other the other guy the other lad is called giovanni who is described as a foreigner <laughs> uh, apparently abney just found him <laughs> while he was a playing his hurdy-gurdy he had him in that very minute it said which again it's like alarm bells if you, anyone yes. would tell you that these days but and he was extremely excited to bring him into the house then this young lad disappeared a bit like the girl but the funny thing is they mentioned that the boy was never without his hurdy-gurdy which got played quite a lot in this and Stephen points out that, well, if he was, then why did he leave it behind? That's some Jessica Flesher shit right there, because <laughs> she would call that out. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So you get to see the boy and the girl. They appear at the window and they're grey faced with very long fingernails. Yes. And they go upstairs and the boy goes into Stephen's bedroom and up towards the bed. And he's playing the hurdy-gurdy with a very creepy smile on his face while he's playing yes. the hurdy-gurdy. And then Stephen, I was surprised at Stephen's reaction. He just very slowly opens his eyes and just gets up. It's like he's in a trance. Mm. I thought he'd be jumping out of that bed and running out the door. But no, he seems to be sort of in a trance. And then he follows him and they walk in to find the girl sitting in an empty bathtub. They move their hands from their chest and he re he sees that they've both got big holes in their chest where the hearts would have been. And that's when uh. he screams. And then Mrs. Bunch and Abney run up to find him and they both dismiss it as a silly old dream. Oh, a scary dream. Hmm. Yeah, it was really it was really good imagery because that kid took a while from playing that thing at the edge of his bed, and yeah. it's like the camera kind of closes in and follows him, and oh, it was so disturbing. Yeah, and uh, Abney just says, "Well, you're a big boy, nearly twelve." He says he keeps talking about this twelve, and then picks up the broken hurdy-gurdy because it's broken by now. Picks it up, chucks it onto the fire as the children are looking through the window. So. In the next day, I think this is, Stephen's outside playing with his kite and he can hear these voices saying something that sounds like hi, 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 something like that. We find out it's his birthday and he's got a birthday cake and he takes it in to Abney to, to give him the cake. Abney has already told Parks to go and fetch him a bottle of best tawny port uh, for some reason. Parks goes down into the cellar to fetch the bottle and he hears some kind of strange whispering down there. Uh, when Stephen goes in to see Abney to bring him his cake, Abney, another creepy thing, Abney starts to say, do you like secrets? Can you keep secrets? <laughs> and he talks about it's a man's secret, a secret between men. Yeah. And, oh, my goodness. And offers to tell him his fortune for his birthday. Meanwhile, we find out that Parks is talking to Mrs. Bunch about what appears to be talking rats in the cellar. 
But as soon as Stephen walks in, they play it down. But he says that he's heard voices as well. Now, later on, Stephen's in bed and we've got the ghost standing outside in the mist, which is quite eerie. Abney, meanwhile, is downstairs getting his sharp knife ready and getting his herbs and his port ready. When the clock strikes midnight, Stephen goes downstairs to have his fortune told, at which point Abney grabs him and drags him into the room and forces him to drink the port, which, again, a bit sinister. He's forced him to drink the alcohol, says something like, your fortune is my fortune, sedates him, rips open his shirt, again, a bit creepy, and mm. um, starts talking about uh, immortality and the strong rhythm of eternity, my eternity. So it gets very sort of poetic and theatrical at that point just at the moment he's about to lunge the knife into Stephen's chest there's a scream and some hurdy-gurdy music as the two ghost children walk in and take the knife from him and I love the way they did this because they did it with shadows you just mm. saw like the shadow of the hands with the long fingernails take the knife I thought that was a nice thing and you yes. hear voices saying heart 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 and then you see the knife going as if it's being plunged into Abney's chest and then the final scene is at Abney's funeral, where Stephen's standing at the side of the, the grave with the others, and he can see the two children, ghosts, outside the churchyard, and they're waving, and they eventually skip away as we hear the sound of the hurdy-gurdy playing. Mm, yeah so what did you make of that one i really like this one it's fun um it's got a couple of scree uh creepy creepy scary and creepy moments in it um and the children were really effective to me and i think you're right there's this really weird pedophilic sort of undercurrent to it yeah um that works really well uh but it's more of a fun entry than it is yes. like yes. all out scary and um but it's good it's definitely watchable like you're right the guy that plays the older is he the cousin or the uncle is yes the cousin yes yeah super creepy and but really delightful to watch you he's know it's funny you're never quite sure whether to to laugh or to really you know i don't know he's just he's it's a very good performance <laughs> it, it is and although you're pretty sure fairly early on like i think they start telegraphing what's to come you're not really quite sure what it is until it starts to happen and mm. so um it's pretty good about keeping it secret you know till the end and um that's it was kind of a nice went somewhere you know i don't know what i was expecting but it was a little unexpected mm. um like mm. the heart thing and um it was just interesting and uh, i really enjoyed it um i would just say it's it's not like super scary no, no, not really at all. But like you said, it's quite fun. It's, yeah, it's ghost. It's a little bit more gory than some of the ones before because of the hearts and stuff. But yes. uh, yeah, it was an interesting one. Yeah, it's all about, it's all about the cousin. I just yes. Want to say that. Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> definitely. Don't forget to visit and like the Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at I am Gore Blimey or email us at trilogypodcast at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Joe Parker, and I'd like to invite you to check out my show, The Hybrid Moments Podcast. I'm just an average guy with a slew of interests, and the podcast is an extension of that. 
The theme of the show varies episode by episode, but some of the topics I cover include horror, music, comics, just about anything but politics. So if you like a little variety in your life, come on by and check out the show. You can find me on iTunes or Stitcher or check out the website, thehybridmomentspodcast.com. You can also join the group on Facebook at The Hybrid Moments Podcast in the group section. Feel free to mingle, leave feedback, or suggestions for future shows. That's The Hybrid Moments Podcast with Joe Parker. Tune in to see what I cover next. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. Ah, ah, ah. It's a dead issue, man. Don't, don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. Unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17 year olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How did you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. 